tonight we'll complete our study of the Genesis account of the global flood of Noah. Fits under our umbrella theme of biblical events and characters and not just lessons that we can learn from these stories and from these characters, but also establish that these characters actually live and that these events actually occurred. Before we can take people to book, chapter, and verse, we have to first often convince them that book, chapter, and verse is actually inspired and actually transpired. And once we do that, we are then prepared to consider the lessons and the principles that we can learn from book, chapter, and verse. And so we've talked about the role of Christian evidences and apologetics as that foundation that we have to start with. Again, before we go to the Bible, often we have to convince somebody that God actually exists, that the Bible is his inspired word, and that Jesus is his son. And so in the first half of our study, we looked at the historical and physical evidences that this global flood actually occurred. And tonight we want to transition to looking at the principles and the lessons that we can learn from this event. We mentioned one last time in passing. We focused on the evidences, but we talked about the cause of the flood, man's wickedness that caused God to regret that he had created man. And as we study in Genesis, what led up to that, what led to that wickedness, essentially we see that good people mixed with interacted, intermarried with bad people that corrupted them. And so there's an obvious lesson there about our relationships, our friendships, evil communications, corrupt good manners. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers and be careful about your friends, your intimate relationships, and obviously who you marry. And so we want to look at five more lessons that we can learn from the Genesis account of the global flood of Noah. And we'll spend a lot of time in Peter's epistles as he had a lot to say about the flood and talk a lot about these lessons that we can learn from the flood. And so as we think about the lessons we learn from the flood, I think so many of them connect with the nature and character of God. And we're going to talk a lot of our points relate to the nature and character of God that we see manifested to a great degree in this catastrophic cataclysmic event. And so we'll talk about the righteousness and holiness and wrath of God that we see very evident in this story. But I want to start with, I think one of the main lessons and the first lesson that we want to consider is the aspect of God's nature and character that we see manifested in this event, his grace, his love, his mercy, that God is in fact long suffering. Second Peter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so as we reflect upon the long-suffering of God, as we see him being patient for over a hundred years, and as we reflect upon how God has been long-suffering to each of us and how God has been long-suffering towards me, it should motivate and inspire me to be long-suffering towards other people. And so as I consider that God was patient with them in all their wickedness, every thought and their imaginations was evil continually, and yet he was patient with them for 120 years. And yet it's convicting because often I can't be patient with my children for 120 seconds. And I think if we're not careful, often we begin to view God as this impersonal force waiting for a reason to punish and destroy us, but in fact, the truth is the exact opposite. 
Notice the words, any and all, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want to tell you, he is for you, not against you. And God has gone to great lengths to rescue, deliver, and save you. Second Peter 2, verse 5, Peter writes here also, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And so we see God's long suffering through the preaching of Noah that continued for over a hundred years. God's plan of salvation, his mercy communicated through the preaching of his word. And we have a responsibility just like Noah to warn the lost, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. And note that Noah preached for a hundred years and yet we only read of eight souls, his family being saved. And while as a general rule, I think we see fruit, we see an increase that God gives often correlating to the amount of planting and watering we do. Often we don't get the fruit or the results that maybe we should because we aren't planting and watering as frequently and consistently as we need to. I think we also need to be reminded of this truth that we plant and water and God gives the increase. And if it's all about just numbers, we could say then by that standard that Noah was the most epic failure of an evangelist of all time. And Jonah, who we studied during our meeting, was the best evangelist and most successful evangelist of all time. And I think we need to commend Noah because Noah saved his own. You look at heroes of faith throughout the Bible who accomplished tremendous victories and great things for the kingdom of God. And yet in the process, many of them lost their children. And I think, again, there's a great lesson in that for us. Evangelism starts in the home. First Peter 3 is an interesting passage here as Peter again refers back to the flood. I had a classmate and teammate in high school approach me concerning this passage and he asked me why did Jesus go to hell to preach to people? And if you think about that, if that's what this verse is teaching, that would contradict many truths that are taught in the Bible, namely that you have this one shot, this one life that once you die, it's too late. There's no second chances. What was the point of Jesus going to them and preaching them after they died when it's too late to respond to the preaching? It's too late to repent. Why did he just go to them and not to other people that have died? And so as you look at this passage in 1 Peter 3, it talks about how Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was up preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. So notice that the preaching was done during the days of Noah while the ark was up preparing. Jesus preached to them by the Spirit, by the Spirit inspiring the preaching of Noah. So why are these people to whom Noah preached to said to be spirits in prison? Well, because at the time Peter was writing these words, that's exactly where these people were. Those who drowned in the flood of Noah's day descended into the Hadean realm, the place of the dead, where they still resided when Peter wrote these words, where they still reside today, awaiting final judgment and sentencing. Second Peter 3, again, as we read more of what Peter had to say about the flood, he says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, 
whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved in the fire against the day of judgment, perdition of ungodly men. And I want to tell you conditions and attitudes haven't changed much today. We live in a very similar world, increasingly skeptical, unbelieving, and scoffing where nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing is holy. I think that's a great problem in our society today. Everything has become common and profane. We've lost reverence and respect. Why? Why do we scoff? Because we're walking after our own lust. That's the agenda. And I can appreciate atheists and unbelievers who have admitted, who have been quoted as saying that the reason they reject God in the Bible was not because of the evidences, but because of their worldview, that God doesn't fit in their worldview, that God interferes with their sexual freedom. We scoff because we want to walk after our own lust. And notice here you had people in Peter's day saying that everything will continue as it's always been. That's uniformitarianism. We talked about that last time and disproved the theory of uniformitarianism, that everything today is just like it's always been. And Peter said, not so. Everything hasn't continued the same from the beginning of creation. There's been a flood, a global catastrophic event. And so if we embrace this theory and worldview and concept that Christ isn't coming back, that everything will continue, learn in the future as it's always been, that nothing has changed, Peter essentially is saying you are choosing to be dumb. You are willingly ignorant. In Exodus 34, as God describes himself here, he said, I'm as good of a God as you could ever hope for. The Lord God, merciful gracious, long-suffering, this truth, this lesson that we see in the flood, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But notice what he says, oh, by no means clear the guilty. And so we see all these qualities and characteristics of the nature of God manifested in a great degree in this event. And I think this passage summarizes this first lesson and leads us into the next lesson that God takes sin very seriously. Romans 1, 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. There again is that agenda, holding the truth in unrighteousness. And unfortunately, the portrait of God painted by man in the 21st century leaves the impression that God's long-suffering is going to last forever. God's justice and wrath and righteousness are ignored while his mercy, love, and grace are perverted into eternal patience. And this is the aspect of God's character that we see evident in the flood that we don't want to talk about that makes us uncomfortable. Sin is always a big deal to God. We could see that in the flood. We talked about the formation of mountains that would have occurred during the flood. And so when you look at the mountains and all their splendor and other aspects of the earth's features that were affected tremendously by the flood. You look at these features and you look at these mountains and their majesty and splendor and be reminded that God takes sin very seriously. And the ultimate picture and illustration of that is the cross of his son. And yet we mock and we scoff. We laugh at sin. We make light of it. We find amusement and entertainment in it. And we see in the flood often those in most need of repentance are the least concerned about it. Judgment is coming. God's long suffering with the sinner is not eternal. The ungodly in Noah's day learned this lesson the hard way. It eventually ends. It ended in the days of Noah. It ended for Sodom and Gomorrah. And it will eventually end for the unfaithful when Jesus returns. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, that the earth is doomed. 
that the earth is going to be destroyed. And so seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And so in light of this awareness and this truth that the Lord's coming back, that this earth is doomed, set your affection on things above, not things on the earth. What manner of person ought you to be? in holy conversation, looking for that new heaven and new earth, being diligent to be found in peace without spot and blameless. We mentioned how Jesus endorsed the flood and his credibility like the other writers of the Bible in part depend upon this event actually occurring. But as we read what he had to say about the flood in Matthew 24, again, we could consider the context, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But I still think the principle that he talks about here is found throughout the Bible of watching and waiting and being prepared for the Lord's ultimate return and coming. He says, but as the days of Noah were, so saw also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. And so he tells us, it's easy to get distracted. The people in Noah's day drowned because they drowned out and ignored the warnings and teachings of will and will of God for them in their life. They were too busy for God. They were distracted. They were selfish and self-centered. They were indulgent. They were worldly, sound familiar, and they were lost. And we see in this event, in the flood, a shadow, a type of the second ultimate coming of Jesus Christ. And we need to prepare for that by following God's blueprint. Genesis 6.22, with the ultimate best epitaph you could ever have. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Noah wasn't partially obedient, he was completely obedient. Someone cries legalism. And if we define legalism as those trying to do their best in all of our imperfection to obey God with the right motive and attitude, we talked about the leaven of the Pharisees, misconceptions about legalism and what it means to be a Pharisee. But if we define legalism as having the right spirit and heart to try to do exactly what God has commanded us to do because we have a reverence for God's word and his warnings, you know where the legalists were? On the boat. You know where the illegalists were? Not on the boat. And I suppose similar attitudes that are pervasive today were pervasive then. You can imagine people saying the same things. I'll get on that ark, but I have conditions. I'm not going to live for over a year with the skunks and all these smelly animals. The layout of the ark needs to be updated to suit my liking and comfort. And what we see from Genesis to Revelation is that God doesn't accept red lines. If Noah had started altering the ark, then it would have been like all the other pieces of wood and rooftops and vessels that didn't save. When men start altering the church, its name, its organization, its worship, doctrine, the plan of salvation to suit our liking and fancies, it no longer is the church of Christ, the church that belongs of denoting ownership, the church that belongs to Christ, the church that was purchased by the blood of Christ. And when that's the case, we are sunk, not saved, because that boat won't float. 
Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. And we see grace and faith combined in salvation in this event, in this story. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Did his faith response to build the ark according to the exact instructions of God nullify God's grace? No. Did it nullify Noah's faith? No, it's the very thing that brought them together and resulted in the salvation of Noah and his family. All the faith in the world wouldn't have saved Noah if it didn't move him to obey God. And that's the faith James talks about in James chapter 2 when he says faith without works, without the faith response, is dead. One thing did not save Noah. There are multiple factors in Noah's salvation. Neither was Noah saved by grace that did not require anything of him. In addition, note, as we alluded to earlier, God's mercy to the ancient world and having Noah preach to them and warn them through the word. God didn't save Noah and his family. God didn't try to save the world through unconditional election and irresistible grace separate and apart from the word of God. God chooses to save us to effect that change, to bring about our salvation by communicating his will to us, his plan of salvation to us in his word. And if we really trust and have faith and believe God, we're going to do, like Noah, exactly what God told us to do. If we really believe it's going to rain, we're going to build a boat. God's blueprint is perfect and doesn't need alterations. Cargo ships today are still often designed with the same dimensions. It was perfect for that. They've done studies where they placed these same dimensions in a washing machine and it wouldn't tip over. Estimated that the ark could withstand waves as high as 98 feet. God knows what he's doing. His design is perfect and flawless. We don't need to redline or update it or modify it. We need to submit to it. And we see this, these factors throughout the Bible that result in God's blessing. We see the grace of God communicated to us in the word of God. Our faith response in submitting and obeying God's plan of salvation, which is a manifestation of our faith and belief, which results in God's blessing. We see that with Noah and his family. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Therefore, God instructed him to make an ark. We read that Noah, by faith, prepared an ark according to all that God commanded him, and the result was the saving of him and his house. We mentioned the event, John 3, Jesus refers to this, whenever the children of Israel were being punished and they were being bitten by snakes, and God's grace said, I have a plan so that you shall live. And he communicated this plan. Look at this bronze snake on a pole. Those who believed, made, and looked, and the result was they lived. I think the Receiving of the promised land is a great illustration of this. The promised land was promised to Abraham's descendants. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They didn't pay for it with any kind of income. It was a free gift from God. Yet we see they had to work to take possession of it. That a gift can still be a gift and a free gift, even though it comes with terms and conditions. We see that as they crossed the Jordan River in the first city they came to, the city of Jericho, and God said, I have delivered into thine hand Jericho. And he communicated his word, his battle plan. March, blow trumpets, shout. We read in Hebrews 11 that the walls fell down by faith after they marched and blew and shouted according to the plan of God. The cleansing of Naaman the leper, God's grace to cleanse him from his leprosy. And he communicated this plan of washing in the Jordan River seven times when he eventually quit being stubborn and believed and submitted and dipped seven times. The result was he received the cleansing that God had promised him. The great commission given by Jesus carried out throughout the book of Acts. The grace of God hath appeared to all men. And yet it doesn't appear to us telling us that just as I am means that's just how I need to stay. 
But the grace of God comes teaching us, teaching us through the gospel, the plan of God, the entrance requirements into the kingdom of God. Believe, repent, and be baptized, and you shall receive the remission of sins. Believe and be baptized, and you shall be saved. And so before we move on to our final point, we've talked about the importance of following God's blueprint. And I think we need to emphasize that if we're going to follow the blueprint, we have to know what the blueprint actually is. And I would encourage you, challenge you to go home and read Genesis chapter 7. I want to ask the question, how many animals did Noah take with him on the ark? And if you think about the story that we've heard our whole life and the songs that we sing, you go look in Genesis 7, maybe you haven't been taught the truth or the whole truth. And I made this point in passing with one of my coworkers. And after we had studied uh, long after that, he came to me later and said that one of the game changers, something that really got his attention and got him to open his mind was this point. Now, it's not doctrinally significant, but what it did was it challenged him that maybe everything I believe or assumed or been taught my whole life isn't the truth or isn't the whole truth. And if we're going to follow God's blueprint for us in our lives, we have to rightly divide. We have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We have to find the blueprint for ourselves. And so the final lesson we want to consider is the fact that you have to get in the ark to be saved. And I think we see in the ark a shadow or a type of Christ's church. You have to be in the ark of safety in the church to be saved. And that's not a popular teaching today and obviously wasn't a popular teaching then based on the response. Again, you can imagine similar attitudes. Couldn't God save people without the ark? That Noah was preaching boat salvation. He's limiting the power of God. That's very judgmental and intolerant and exclusive to say that you have to be on Noah's boat to be saved. Why do I have to be in the ark to be saved? I'm a good moral person. I don't need organized religion. Doesn't Noah know that all paths lead to the same place? And these comments reflect an ignorance of the value, importance, and essentiality of the church of Christ of his body, the kingdom, his church, the blood that purchased his church, that he gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, as we talked about in our study on the new birth, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And if you want to appear before God, sanctified and cleansed, washed of water by the word, not having spot or wrinkle, Holy without blemish, you have to be in the ark in the church. And Peter talks about how we do that. First Peter 3, we read in verse 20, while the ark was up preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. And then Peter compares the salvation in Noah and his family by water to our salvation today. Verse 21, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about these extremes that have developed in regards to baptism because of the Catholic extreme that said that there was mystical power in the water that were saved all by works and not by faith, that infant baptism and people being baptized who didn't believe and didn't repent, there was no actual conversion. And so you had reformers that responded in the opposite extreme like John Calvin to completely remove baptism from the plan of salvation at all. And what the truth is, baptism is just as important as faith and repentance, but baptism is not valid without the prerequisites of faith and repentance. And the fact that there's water in the plan seems odd to most today, but what was Noah being saved from? A world of sin. 
and water was the means by which God used to destroy sin. Peter says that this is the same way we are saved today. Not a physical outward cleansing, but an obedient heart to the call of God. The Greek word dia, translated by or through, means the manner or the circumstance one finds themselves into because of something affected. Uh, via a medium an agency and water was the medium was the agency that god used to for Noah and his family to escape the fate of the lost the water was the means of destroying the wicked and the means of saving Noah and his family from that wicked generation it was the dividing line between the saved and the damned it destroyed that old life and raised them up saved in newness of life it delivered them from corruption to a redeemed relationship with the lord and the water which saved Noah was a type of baptism which saves us today. Water bore up the ark. It was the means of floating their boat and burying them harmless. God affected their salvation, these new circumstances, through water. The water isn't the salvation, but it's the means by which God brings about the salvation. Just like we see in the example of Naaman or the blind man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9. The power to save is in Jesus's death and resurrection, but how do we access his death and resurrection? Romans chapter six, Colossians two, we access the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at the point of baptism. And so just like Paul emphasized the resurrection of Jesus in Romans six and Colossians two, Peter does the same here in first Peter three. Notice again, by, via the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think that stresses and impresses upon us the essentiality of baptism. Somebody says, we're not saved by what we do, but what Jesus did. And that's exactly right. But how do we access what Jesus did so that we could be saved? How do we access the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Having faith in the operation and work of God through baptism. Titus 3, we studied in the new birth, as Paul said, that we're not saved by works of righteousness which we have done but we are saved by a washing of regeneration which is baptism so obviously baptism is contrasted with works of merit or works of righteousness where we earn salvation because baptism is when we access what jesus did through the gospel his death burial and resurrection to make our salvation possible romans 6 as paul talks about how we obey the gospel so that we can be freed from sin Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. That word into, the Greek word ice, the, the spear or the, the realm into which we enter as a result of being baptized. We don't get into Christ, into his body, into the kingdom, into the ark of safety, into the church where all spiritual blessings are found until we are baptized into Christ. We don't get into the death, burial, and resurrection of what Jesus did so that we could be saved until we are baptized. And what a privilege it is for us as sinners to be able to participate and reenact the event that made our salvation possible through baptism. Acts chapter 2, we see this the great commission being carried out throughout the book of Acts, the birthday of the church. Peter preaches to them and they ask, what must we do? What shall we do to be saved? And Peter commands them to do something. Evidently, they already believe. And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Save yourself from this untoward generation, like Noah and his family. And those that gladly received his word were baptized. And the result was they were added into the church. The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so we enter into this realm 
of salvation, this state of the saved, which is what the word church literally means whenever we are baptized into Christ and put on Christ. When you think about the significance of water, physically and then spiritually, God has put water between life and death, between thirst and satisfaction, between sin and salvation we see in the flood, between blindness and sight we see Jesus in John chapter 9, between disease and sickness and healing we see with Naaman the leper, and God has placed water between our sin and our salvation. I think it's interesting as we begin to conclude our thoughts that the first thing they did was worship God. And I think that's a natural response to redeemed people, that we want to express our gratitude and our praise for God at every opportunity, and not just in the worship assembly, but every day that we strive to be a living sacrifice, that we live for the one who died for me. And we see in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13, God says, I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And as we think about the rainbow and all of its majesty and its beauty, and we think about earlier, we talked about the mountains that remind us of the aspects of God's character and nature about how we view sin and how we should view sin. We see the righteousness and holiness and wrath of God, but we see in the rainbow those aspects that are also a part of his infinite character, the love and grace and mercy of God, the long-suffering of God. And we should be reminded of what that rainbow symbolizes. We've had rainbows here at our house frequently. Lately, we've had several double rainbows. You see here one uh, recently. And I would encourage you, as you look at the rainbow, consider what God has put under that rainbow. You can see what's been under my rainbow here. And think about the one who is above the rainbow. Think about what the rainbow symbolizes, the faithfulness and promises of God. And note, like we talked last time, if this was a local, regional event, then God has broken that promise on a multitude of occasions as we continue to have local and regional floods. But if that's a universal global flood, God has kept his promise because that's what God does. And the rainbow reminds us of the faithfulness of God, of his love and his goodness and mercy towards us, of the importance of being in a covenant relationship with God and applying these lessons that we learn from the flood before it's too late. The rainbow does not stand for sin and pride and parades and divisive groups of letters of XYZ LMNOP. It's not what it means. It's the grace of God that's appeared to all men, that's been offered to all men, teaching us how to be in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Have you found grace in the eyes of the Lord? The answer is, are you in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ? And the invitation still stands today. Come, you and all your house, into the ark. And if you need to do that, we've talked specifically and in depth about how you enter this covenant relationship, how you enter into the ark, into the church, through faith, repentance, and baptism. And we encourage you to do that before the door slams shut and it's too late, while there's still time and opportunity. Prepare to meet thy God.